Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets, to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to OK Computer. We have a bang up show for you today. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined with Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Jack Debo. Welcome back to the pod. Hello from a rare sunny day here in San Francisco. We've got a lot of rain. I got to tell you, that view from one market at CNBC, it, it's, it's picturesque. I love being out there. I love seeing you in it. And that is a real thing. That is the Bay Bridge right behind Debo. So thanks so much, Debo, for being here. For all you folks who are watching us on the Risk Versal Media YouTube page, you can see that nice view there. The little housekeeping here in the B block of this pod, we're going to be running a conversation that I had last week from iConnections Global Alts Conference with Rick Heitzman. He is the CEO and founder of First Mark Capital and Alexis Ohanian, who is the founder of 776 Capital, also the co-founder of Reddit. We had a great conversation. We're just kind of taking kind of the vibe check as far as VCs go, valuations, due diligence, a whole host of other things things and really some green shoots that are happening um, in the tech markets and the private markets that is a little bit. So stick around for that conversation. You can listen to it in the audio feed. You can also watch the video of Rick, Alexis, and myself on the Risk Russell Media YouTube page. You're you, so hip, Dan, with I, the vibe check. Yeah, a little bit of a vibe check. You know, listen, I'm with a guy like Alexis who's hip. If you follow him on the socials, yeah, he is cool. he's definitely an influencer. My main man, Rick, um, he's pretty good on the socials too, but we had a great conversation there. You and I got a lot to cover. I saw you on CNBC this morning. This is Tuesday, as you and I are recording in the afternoon. There was a headline about Dan Loeb bringing back Adam Newman to resurrect WeWork. I want to get into that. I also want to get into a, a deal for DocuSign that looks like PE is walking away from and the company is taking some cost-cutting steps. Um, also want to hit great article in the FT yesterday. That would be Monday, recapping a credit analyst at Barclays, a note on NVIDIA and I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with NVIDIA in the stock market and what we might see as far as just the competitive landscape and just a whole host of other things demand for their high-end GPUs. So let's spend some time on that. First things first, D. All right. You wake up this morning. You see this headline. Third point, Dan Loeb trying to bring Adam Newman back to WeWork. What is your first instinct on that headline? My first instinct is I'm not surprised. I mean, there's been little breadcrumbs about Adam Newman wanting to take back WeWork for a long time. The surprising part of it was Dan Loeb and third point. Let me tell you what happened. Adam Newman's lawyers, they sent WeWork a letter to the management last night saying that Newman's latest venture, it's a real estate company called Flow Global, is partnering with Dan Loeb's hedge fund Third Point for a bid. 
but the company isn't responding and the letter kind of implied that the company's kind of shutting them down along the way. So I woke up this morning, I did some digging. I thought, well, if Dan Loeb is involved, this is something new and you can't just scoff at a Dan Loeb financed bid. But what I found out is that those talks were very preliminary. And, you know, a source familiar with what was happening told me that it was actually just one meeting last fall between Loeb and Newman. And I thought this was interesting. There were SoftBank executives at that meeting also. SoftBank, right? And Masasan has financed WeWork at its very peak before it all came crashing down. And I'm told that there's no commitment. So we're kind of back to where we were a few months ago. Newman wants to go back. There's probably some people who would be happy to see Newman go back. But right now, the company doesn't want him back because of all the stuff that they've been through. And I thought equally as interesting was the statement that the company WeWork gave me. It called itself an extraordinary company. (laughs) I can't argue with that description. It is extraordinary in every sense of the word. Um, And they also said that they receive expressions of interest from external parties on a regular basis. That I'm not so sure how serious those are, right? Because I know we're going to get to this with DocuSign. Sure, there's a lot of private equity firms and funds sniffing around, but they tend to look at software companies, not companies like WeWork that are deeply unprofitable and hold onto leases that may not make any sense anymore. So it was just an interesting story. Right. And especially at a time where one of the big concerns, there seems to be very few concerns in the economy, very few concerns in in most risk asset markets, but one of them just seems to be commercial real estate. And so when you think about what this company is and what the unit economics were, what made it so attractive in the ZERP days, right? Back in, you know, 2019, when it was last valued at 47 billion. I think it was SoftBank led a series H round at $47 billion. (laughs) And then the company obviously collapsed into the fall of 2019, right before it was meant to go public. The company was reorganized, a whole host of different things. Newman kicked out, not just kicked out for bad management of the company, but a bunch of other things, you know what I mean? Corporate governance and a whole host of other things that we're starting to see actually come into the Tesla story a little bit with Elon. So when you think of $47 billion going to zero, obviously went public via SPAC, now at zero again. All your reporting makes sense in my mind, having known nothing about this. I just can't see what sort of value is. There might be brand value for this company. Listen, I am in a WeWork. I have a great office space. I have a studio here. I, you know, We sublet from somebody else. I think from a consumer standpoint, very few people have a negative kind of connotation yeah. about WeWork. It really is just all the investors That's that have right. burned over the years and stuff like that. So is there a another life for WeWork, probably as a brand. If anyone is going to breathe life into this brand, I have to say it's a good chance that person is going to be Adam Newman because I saw it in the early days here in San Francisco. I remember going to their big events and there was just this real like community around it. And that's what they always did really well. And in the ZERP era, the billions and billions of dollars from Masasan in that series H or I or J, whatever it was, just billions upon billions to grow faster and lose more money. That's where it all went wrong. So who knows? Maybe Adam Newman goes back with some discipline. Maybe he found religion in these last few years. But I will say the business model could look different because his new company, Flow, is different in that he's actually 
buying up real estate. He's not just leasing it and turning it around for shorter term rentals. Yeah, that, that'll probably end really well too. Um, all right, let's go to this. <laughs> let's go to this DocuSign story because I think this yeah. is really interesting. It crosses over a lot of themes that you and I are really interested in. Obviously, this was a pandemic darling. I think the stock rallied more than 300% from its COVID lows to its highs in 2021. But like Zoom and a whole host of other things like Peloton, all the stuff from home sold off nearly 90% to its recent lows last year. The stock screened really well. When you looked at the market cap, you looked at the debt, you looked at the net cash position, you looked at the profitability, you looked at a whole host of other things, and the stock rallied from its October lows to its recent highs based on the interest in private equity. I think it was Bain & Co. and Hellman and & Friedman. The company could not agree on price. The stock is selling off now. They're doing a restructuring. They're laying off workers and the like here. And it's interesting, D, when you see a company like this that obviously has a great product. They have a great brand, right? The 2021 valuations never made any sense. That's not on the company. That's on investors. But when you see this sort of stuff in this sort of environment, it kind of makes me think, okay, I thought this was going to be a great opportunity for private equity. We saw it in software over the last year or so. Some of these companies savvily trying to pick up some of these assets. What does this mean to you right now? Because ultimately, if you can't get a deal done with private equity, they probably already were picked over by strategic M&A. Then you got to cut costs and you got to right size the business here. It's in a really tough position, right? Private equity is supposed to come in, make the cost cuts, make it more efficient and turn it around. But now it has that job to do for itself. And I think of DocuSign like I think of a Zoom, right? These were both pandemic darlings and Zoom became a verb and a noun in the pandemic and it's all everyone was on. And over the years though, since then, it's really become commoditized, right? Like having a telecommunications tool, it feels like everyone has that, right? Like it's built into Teams. It's built into Google. It's not that special anymore. And it feels like DocuSign is in a similar place. Like, sure, it works really well. It's intuitive. They have a great offering, but how much is it to just plug that into a Microsoft or a Google or even an Apple these days? So it still has a valuation of 11 billion. Is that the latest, Dan? You're right. It's come back from those post-pandemic lows. But the other headline regarding DocuSide today is that it cut about 6% of its staff. And I went and looked, how many people is that? 440. That's like a lot for just 6%. So I did back of the envelope calculation. DocuSign prior to this layoff has over 7,000 employees. That feels like a lot for a company that has been struggling that we were supposed to have just gone through this year of efficiency. Maybe it would have been more appealing to private equity funds had it taken these measures earlier. Yeah. And when I look at this and I say, here's a company that's expected to do nearly $3 billion in sales next year, growing um, at about mid single digits, earnings growth, low to mid single digits. It's got an 80% gross margin. So you say to yourself with a nine and a half billion dollar enterprise value, there's plenty of stuff to do if you're a private equity company to retool this company at the right price and bring it back out. There's probably a way to mash it together with a Zoom, not exactly a Zoom, but a Salesforce would be interested in this company at some point, right? So there's a whole host of strategic things that could happen after it gets retooled. But to your point, now it has to do it in the public markets at a time where there's lots of competition from lots of big platform companies. So I'm with you. And I just want to read this on the M&A front because I always kind of have my little banker M&A hat on when I think about what might be a nice, tidy little mash together or something like that. And a friend of mine, Ryan Dennehy, who's the 
CEO founder of Electric AI tweeted this morning. We'll put it in the show notes. Just heard about a founder of a $30 million ARR company had to hire a bank to sell his company in September. Wouldn't take calls from competitors. Now laying off half the team, going back to competitors, hat in hand, sad. Now is not the time to let your ego get in the way of good decisions. Now, I highlight this because this is obviously a smaller private company, okay? And so obviously in looking for strategic M&A, this is when they hired the company back in September, didn't happen. And it's interesting to disconnect, D, between what's gone on with the NASDAQ at all-time highs, the S&P at all-time highs. Certain parts of the market just feel euphoric, but there still is a lot of tension under the hood, right? And that's why we continue to see a lot of these cost cuttings. And I know that you, you want to talk about some of just the cuts that we're seeing away from DocuSign this week. Snap is cutting 10% of their workforce. We're seeing Salesforce and others over the last few weeks or so. Talk to me about this because there seems to be a huge disconnect between what the NASDAQ 100 or the Fab Five are saying and what's going on in private tech markets and then obviously smaller cap public tech. I feel like we've been talking about this disconnect between software CEOs and the public markets for a long time, and it hasn't helped that software names have come back from those pandemic lows, is that it's not surprising to see CEOs, and especially founders, right, who put everything they had into these companies to build them, wait and say, okay, hold on, private equity did that deal, so maybe we could wait and hold out for a higher price from a PE firm. And I'm looking at the IGV, which is the software ETF. It's up 20% over the last three months. And like you said, the NASDAQ is, and, and the S&P are hitting record highs. It's not, it doesn't surprise me that they think that they can hold out, right? They can be that case. But your example of your friend who had to go back hat in hand, I think we're going to see a lot of that. And the generative AI cycle changes everything too, right? Is that a lot of these exciting software companies that went public in 2021, they, their proposition is a little different these days. And you think about a DocuSign, is all of that going to be automated away? Is there going to be a cleaner, faster, more efficient way of doing that on the back end than this company that built it up? So I, I, they're, in tricky, they're in a tricky position. And just the idea that this latest deal with DocuSign has stalled probably doesn't bode well for some of the other names that we're hoping for an exit. Yeah. All right. And here's one. And let's maybe finish on this one, because I think this is actually probably the most important story in the entire stock market, not just in technology. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here at all. OK. And it's NVIDIA. And off of its lows in early January, stocks sold off like a lot of the like the mega cap tech stocks did. The Fab Five, whatever the hell you want to call them now. Um, it was the Mag 7. The stock was up at its highs this morning. Morning, this is Tuesday, of 45% from those lows. Okay, so the company had gained $750 billion in market cap. In the S&P 500, okay, there are less than 10 stocks that have $750 billion or more in market cap. So just think about that, what this stock gained in such a short period of time. And I just want to highlight something that was in the FT. This was yesterday on Monday, and it was in FT Alphaville and said, sell NVIDIA. And it was an article detailing a credit analyst at Barclays, a guy named Sandeep Gupta, 14-year TMT veteran, who put an underweight on the stock. There is not a single Wall Street equity analyst who covers a stock, and there's more than 60 that rate the stock a sell. 58 of them or so rate the stock a buy. They've been moving their price targets up the whole way. We know the bull case, okay? We don't have to go over that. But 
Sandeep is highlighting some of the bear case, okay? And some of these things are pretty well known. The competition's coming on. AMD did not double in the last four months because they don't have a product that can't compete with the NVIDIA high-end processors, right? That is the perception, at least in the market, when you think about it. Competition's coming. He also highlights the fact that when you go from training these large language models to the inference phase, okay, of these models, it's much less intensive computing, right? And there's going to be much less demand. He talks about China demand and all the triple ordering that's gone on over the last year. He talks about vendor financing. This is really important. The company has made maybe close to a couple dozen VC investments in the space. And those companies that they're investing in are using the capital that NVIDIA's venture arm has given them to buy their GPUs. Okay, And then they're using those GPUs as collateral. We've seen this before at the turn of the century. Companies like Sun Microsystems and a host of other companies were doing this in the server space and the telecom equipment space. It didn't end well. The last piece, and I want to make, and I'll take a breath here, Okay, is that the concentration of customers, Meta and Microsoft, are nearly 30% of NVIDIA's revenues. Okay, Four customers, and then throw Google and Amazon in there, make up close to 50% of their revenues. That sort of customer concentration. It's not something that those companies feel good about, but they needed the GPUs, so they got all up in there. But once you start getting AMD, and the last piece, and this is a story that went on, this is the vendor financing one, a company called CoreWeave, which was like their seventh largest customer, which was supposedly buying tens of thousands of their GPUs with capital that was coming from NVIDIA. So if you are bullish on this story, if you are long this stock, you have to read this article because we say this all the time on the tape, on a market call, an OK computer. You might be right. You might have nailed this story, but you better understand the bear case if you remain bullish here. Because again, the sort of euphoria, $750 billion in a month on no news other than your competitors, um, what they've had to say and what your customers had to say. This company's going to report in a couple of weeks. And I just think it could be an accident waiting to happen if everyone heads for the door at the same time. That's it. Rant over. Thoughts there, Dean. <laughs> First of all, I love your rant. You're speaking my language because as a journalist, it's my job to highlight the bear case, right? And sometimes we get accused of being Debbie Downers, but you're right. And it's not just true of NVIDIA, but like all the tech mega caps overwhelmingly buy ratings. And I remember through 2022, all the brokerages had buy ratings for the firm. No one saw the downturn coming. It didn't last very long, but it is always really important to understand the bear case. I don't even think you got to China in that, did you? And that's another really important point is that the Chinese are doing everything they can to catch up, to develop their own high-end chip. But I, I don't know what to tell you, Dan. I mean, the bull case is also so compelling. What happened to NVIDIA's valuation last year when it tripled, the stock price tripled? What happened to the valuation? It went down because it's sales and earnings power just exploded. And I know you very well laid out the case of why that was happening and there was some vendor dealing. But I would also argue that a lot of the mega caps are doing that with the AI, generative AI darlings. So I, the yeah, other thing I would say, what, wait, though, hold on. I just want to push back. There's one huge difference here. And you are so right. It did grow into that valuation. OK, but here's the deal right now. And especially as we think about earnings just a couple weeks out from now, expected 2025 earnings. That's the current fiscal year that they're going to be in. OK, earnings and sales growth are mid teens right now. And the stock now is trading at 32 times. Why is this gotten out of whack a little bit? Because the stock has rallied 45 yeah. percent in a straight line. <laughs> this year. And so that's my point. The fundamentals may 
remains strong relative to where the market is. That's the problem, D, in my opinion, and that's the accident waiting to happen. It's not that the fundamentals are about to turn. They will turn at some point. The deceleration will be meaningful. The competition, the issues with China, maybe there's a couple vendors that go out of business, right? There's a whole host of things that could really start picking at the the brilliance of the story. And then when you look at how important NVIDIA is to the broader markets, right, that you do run into these issues. And it's very important to understand this case. But let me tell you something. Like, I've been covering now big tech for eight years from San Francisco. And every time I look, I think, "Uh uh-oh, the competition's coming. Something's going to happen. This is the bear case. It could all fall apart. The thing is, these mega cap companies, they're not just one business anymore. Apple is not just the iPhone. Amazon is not just e-commerce. Apple has services, which kind of came out of nowhere and created the next thesis for that company. Amazon discovered advertising, which became this gigantic high margin business. And before that, it was AWS, cloud computing. And what NVIDIA is doing, it's gone beyond just creating the hardware. It's no longer just about the GPU. It's about the ecosystem. There's rumors that it could go into cloud computing. And in my mind, over the last few years, it has turned into a tech company, from a tech company to a mega cap company. And I think that they're finding different revenue streams to go beyond just the GPU. And I think that could be what sustains its valuation or gives it another revenue stream, another leg of growth. At least that's just, that's for me covering the mega caps and seeing that they're able to successfully diversify. And Alphabet is a good example of something that hasn't quite yet, right? They're looking for that. They're becoming players in cloud computing. It's still just the advertising core search, which has been called the greatest business of all time. Maybe that's what NVIDIA is doing, but you're right. Chips are more cyclical. Yeah, and I guess, so the hardware aspect of it is very cyclical. The competition has not been there. They've owned this entire market at a time where there was the biggest arms race that we've ever seen in the history of technology. And that is a matter of fact over the last year or so. So like to me, it really can't get much better. And when I think about, you just mentioned they might go into cloud computing. They would be competing then with their biggest customers. And their biggest customers have already mentioned, this is Google, this is Microsoft, and this is Amazon, that they are designing their own high-end graphics chip. So their customers are starting to compete. This story does not get much better than here, in my opinion, at, at, like from here. This is it. And it's going to be confirmed, I think, when we have that earnings event in a couple of weeks. Let me do one more counterpoint. Um, we've had the hyperscalers report plus Meta, right? CapEx numbers just booming expected for this year. I think it was the Morgan Stanley Cloud CapEx tracker. They've now revised their estimate from 18%, I think, to 26% growth this year. So these companies are still buying. And I, I hear you, there's more competition coming online, but the competition hasn't delivered yet. And the chips that Amazon and Alphabet are working on, they can't tell us who's using them quite yet. Okay, sure, so they can. And Anthropic is now using Amazon's new AI chips, but to what extent they're still using NVIDIA GPUs. I don't have a ton of confidence in that CapEx guidance, and I'll tell you why, because we just spent a few minutes talking about all of the cuts that we're seeing in headcount. Once they cut to the bone in headcount, if they do see revenue slowdowns, if they do see a recession that's finally coming that's been forecasted for two years, well, then they cut CapEx. This is also a story. Listen, I go back to NVIDIA. Jensen Wang is probably the the most unheralded CEO in the history of technology or, or any industry for that matter. 
word, but this is a company over the last five or six years was at the forefront of crypto mining, of gaming, of data center, say that. Of, yes. of, of AR, VR. This stock sold off 70% from its 2021 highs because AR and VR, because one of their biggest customers, Meta, cut their CapEx on AR and VR. So I, I guess my point is we've seen this before. It's euphoric right now. You and I can go back and forth. And I know you're just playing devil's advocate a bit here. <laughs> I know. I, like, I, I appreciate but, the cold water. I always appreciate a cold water story. But I will say even the cryptocurrency story, left for dead in the water, what are they going to do with all these GPUs? Jensen Wong was nimble enough, smart enough, quick enough to turn it around and capitalize on the AI hype. He has proven himself as extremely nimble and smart and of the cut of like a Bezos or a Jassy or a Sundar or a Satya. So I appreciate the article because I do think you need a headline like sell NVIDIA feels yeah. so provocative right yeah. now. And maybe it shouldn't be. I'll tell you one thing. We detailed on, on Market Call yesterday on Monday away. If you were long the stock, you can sell out of the money calls looking out a couple months and you could use the proceeds of those call sales against your long stock position, staying long and buying downside puts. It's called a collar. That's how Mark Cuban became a billionaire in the late 90s when he sold broadcast.com to Yahoo and got a boatload of Yahoo stock. He said, you know what? I'm good here. I'm going to actually collar my stock and make sure that I am define my risk on the downside of this position and I am capping my upside. It's a brilliant trade. We'll put the story if you're not familiar with it in the show notes here, but there's ways to kind of stay in the game, but protect a lot of these exorbitant gains that you had. All right, Dee, that was a very healthy conversation. I really appreciate the back and forth. Always love being here. Thanks, everybody, for being here. We're going to have a little upbeat, kind of fun panel. Um, I'm Dan Nathan, and I'm joined by a, a great friend of mine. That would be Rick Heitzman. He's the founder and CEO of uh, venture firm First Mark Capital, and Alexis Ohanian, who is the founder of 776. And you guys also know that he was the founder of Reddit and former executive co-chairman. And He's kind of like, um, what do you call it, pancake aficionado on the Insta, um, and that captivates me. So Very proud of that. we um, are really excited to be here. We, we want to hit a topic. It's funny, as we've made our way through the content today, a um, lot of great discussions by a lot of great market practitioners. And you know, the, the thing is, I come from a public markets background, but I find what these guys do is fascinating. You know, When you talk about patience and investing, um, you guys have to be patient, it's just by nature of what you do. Um, so we wanna talk a little bit about the volatility that you've seen in your markets and the private markets and how the public markets might have affected that sort of thing. And really just this period that we've been in over the last, call it four or five years, is there's been some big peaks. Think so? Yeah, you know what I mean? And, and, some, and some massive drawdowns and how that idea of patience really helps. And so, you know, Alexis, I'll start, I'll start with you because obviously you're a former founder and, you know, you got into the investment business. I know that you were doing a lot of seed investing probably all along the way. Talk to us like what, you know, you founded 776 in, I, I think, the, like a really weird period for venture. Talk to us a little bit about what the impetus for that was and what you were doing differently with your business model than some of the other established venture firms that are out there. I Look, 2020 was a wild year, as you all know. Uh, and that was a big year for me. That was the year that I resigned from the board of Reddit. That was the year that I decided to start that firm, 776, with the idea that we could build technology just like we would at a product company. Uh, but use that technology to then help us do the job of deploying capital, being early stage investors, supporting our companies, running our business, et cetera. And uh, the wild, I think, best part of this job 
is the fact that everything we do, even if it's building software, is still through the lens of how do we build deeper and better relationships with our founders and with our CEOs. And we get to do it from the very beginning. And there is something incredibly satisfying about believing in a founder, cutting them a check in the very beginning when no one else believes in them, and seeing that business all the way through to IPO. And I can say as someone who's, you know, knock on wood, on the verge of an IPO with Reddit, no comment, um, it, you sleep a lot better uh, when you're just the one deploying the capital. And, and it's just a privilege to be able to do the job. Well, it's interesting. So you guys are both on the row board together. Um, Great and, company. And Zach, the founder, CEO of that company, he's a good friend of mine. And um, I've gotten to talk to him a little bit about the two of you and the impact that the two of you guys have both had on that company and the success. And, and again, that's a company that, in my opinion, knowing them and, and being a user of their product um, and a very happy one, um, they're inflecting right now. Rick. Talk to me a little bit about what Alexis just said. It, it's not just a check, you know what I mean? Yes. Like every Saturday, this guy and Z, they call him Z affectionately, mm. they FaceTime me when they're doing one of their walk-in talks on the way back from your weekly breakfast that you do with him in NYC. Talk to me a little bit about that relationship because that is really what differentiates, I think, mm. what you guys are really set out to do. No, we, we believe in establishing deep relationships. I think the two of us believe that when you partner with a founder, you're there to support them in good times and bad. And when a problem comes up, you're sitting on the same side of the table as them, and you have to address that issue. And also, you got to believe when you invest at the first institutional round, you're going to have a decade-long arc with that company and that founder, in the good cases. Uh, you know, I was on the board of, of Pinterest for, I think, 13 or 14 years from seed check through the, public, uh, through the public markets. And so that's a long time where you see a lot of good and bad things and almost all of our successful companies had a period where there was existential risk. They might run out of capital, the product's not working, all kinds of bad things happen. And you bond over that time. Mm. And it's really important for you to be one of those first calls for the founder and them to know and trust you. And you know, maybe tying it back to where we started, you know, I think a lot of people were just throwing money at, uh, throwing money at everything maybe a couple of years ago. But I think you know, what your, the lessons learned from an FTX or lessons learned from some of these markets is, if you're going to get involved in venture capital, you have to have that deep relationship with founders. To be competitive in that market, whether it's through software or whether it's through relationships, you have to be able to add discrete value to that founder in that company. And then you have to be in it for the long term. Yeah. You have to have the longest view in the room. And that's the direction the world's going. So Alexis, you, um, you just alluded to a company that you founded uh, a, a while ago, and, and it will be pretty fascinating when you think about it. there haven't been too many consumer sort of internet companies that have come public. And again, this is not your words, but there's been reports that it's getting close to an exit. Talk to us a little bit about what that founder journey was like for you and how it's actually helped inform you as an investor now and, and the sort of firm that you wanted to build and the sort of relationships to Rick's point of having a long kind of, you know, the longest view in the room, that sort of thing. Is that is it something that's been foundational to 776? It has. And, you know, 2005, I was a first time CEO down in UVA, Charlottesville, Virginia, starting a company that actually wasn't Reddit. The, the idea that we pitched to Y Combinator's first batch was ordering food from your cell phone. We actually got rejected from that idea because it was 2005. That idea sucks. Well, in 05, I'm, I'm it was a poorly food timed dash, idea. It's called, right? 
Uh, no, it was actually called My Mobile Menu, or M. Mm. I was very happy with that ah. name. Uh, but there were no smartphones. You'd have to do it via text. It was, it was not going to work. Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston, founders of YC, said, we don't like this idea. The next morning, Paul calls me back and he says, listen, we like you. We just don't like the idea. Change your idea. That ended up becoming Reddit. And so took their $12,000, uh, took their guidance, got to build something, and you know, 16 months later, bought by Condé Nast for $10 million. Wow. At the time, that was, I mean, it was, it was absolutely life-changing money. It was inconceivable that I could get paid that much money for 16 months worth of work, and my parents would never make that money their entire working lives. But I didn't have as much help as YC gave me. You know, Sam Altman was in that first batch. We, we were very fortunate. Um, I didn't have folks in the room to say, hey, Alexis, if you have a $10 million acquisition offer, take that and go raise some more money. At the time, we had raised $72,000 total. That was what our YC demo day round was. That was a seed round back then. And that was more money than I thought we would ever need because we didn't pay ourselves a salary. Mm -hmm. It was just the two of us. We could live like college students for years on that. And I just didn't have, uh, I didn't have the sophistication to know that there was another game to play. Mm -hmm. And so I got the chance, obviously, to come back to Reddit in 14 as chairman to help lead the turnaround. And that taught me how to actually build an org. And so in my job on this side of the table, I want to be that counsel for a founder to be the advisor that I wish I had had when I first sold Reddit, but also the advisors that I got when I came back and got to turn it around and got to learn firsthand from folks like my now partner, Caitlin, about how to build a high performance org, how to, how to be a leader, how to do things that at 21, fresh out of college, I don't know, I was just not equipped for. Uh, but the good news is founders today, like Z, are so much smarter, so much more sophisticated than we were back then because there was no playbook. You couldn't just watch a YouTube video. You know, there's so many more resources now. So those resources, Rick, and again, you got, so Rick and I, this is really funny. I mean, I think it's funny. We met on the set of CNBC's Fast Money at the NASDAQ market site in November of 2013, and he was a guest, and we did not have a lot of VCs on back then. Mm -hmm. um, we, he was a guest because Twitter had just gone public, and we wanted to ask Rick, what was the next internet company to go public? And he said, as a board member of Pinterest, Pinterest, which, uh, you know, it was a good call. Yeah. But patience was a virtue there. Um, yes. So let's talk a little bit um, about what Alexis just described and what the promise of a YC was back then. You guys are early stage investors, both of you. How is this kind of like this mission creep that we've seen over, let's say, the last five years? A lot of pre-seed turned into seed and then A and, you know what I mean? Like it kind of moved up the, the, the ladder a little bit too quickly. Is that fair to say? Uh, a lot of people were doing a lot of things, oftentimes things they weren't special set. Yeah. Mm. So <clears throat> and that was that was just a propagation of too much money. And you know, mm. we've talked about it, a lot of people have talked about it from this and other stages over these last couple of days, that too much money created uh, certain problems in the system. So now if, as everyone's resetting, what does that mean? You know, I think for at least from our perspective, it means what are you good at? How do you have, you know, how, what's your strategy? And we were fortunate that we, our strategy hasn't changed in 18 years since we started the firm, that it was, we, we focus on certain sectors that we know, we, we believe we know as well as anyone else of application layer and infrastructure software for consumers and enterprises. We focus on New York City. About half our companies have always been in New York City. And you know, we, we focus on being an early investor and the lead director and being able to have that relationship with founders, add value to founders, and help them grow. 
And that's, basi that's basically it. And despite you know, a lot of pull, and there's certain things that are tantalizing about being able to raise a lot more money or do a lot more things, uh, we stuck to our knitting. And I think that's, that's been the, the whole difference um, in retrospect, in that we have a, a small, tight team that all show up at the same office every day and all have the same mission to over-serve our founders and provide them as much value as possible so we're 100% referenceable by them and they do right by us and therefore we could return a, a tremendous amount of capital to our LPs. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about thought leadership. So uh, Alexis, um, you've been on the pod with Rick and I. We have a great podcast, OK Computer. Check it out, people, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, uh, but this was, I, I wanna say in, in um, early 2021, and, and some tides were kind of turning in, in some of the Web3 stuff. But mm. you, know, you were a really interesting thought leader um, because not only were you investing in the space, you were a practitioner, um, you were very accessible, um, the last time I saw I tweet you, too much. Well, I, I mean, listen. You know, I think a lot of people learned a lot from, from watching you in real time, and I think that you know, like, again, um, you know, whatever your opinion is. But I was in Miami Beach. It was um, maybe Crypto Week or one of those. I want to say, <laughs> and there was as many people in the audience right here on a beach, at a bar, it was one of those things at one of those hotels, all black t-shirts, by the way, you know what I mean? Not, not none of this stuff that you guys are dressed in right here, but it's pretty interesting. You can draw both of those sorts of audience. Rick is usually wearing a black t-shirt, by the way. Mm. Um, it's a good look. Talk like, 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 to us a little bit about like what you learned, because that was, what, a year or two into founding 776, and, mm. and, and again, I used to see you on CNBC, I saw you on a lot of podcasts. You were a, a clear thought leader in the space. Well, look, the most of my, <laughs> the, 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 the note you made, Rick, about having the longest view in the room, most of my biggest wins doing this job have had to mean looking very wrong for periods of time. Um, as the first investor in Coinbase in 2012, I have looked at every single crypto winner <laughs> And, and stared it in the face and realized this is the time when the builders build, when most of the charlatans and seamsters flee, and the real work gets done. And so this is, you know, at this point it almost doesn't phase me. The, it is interesting now to see it start to thaw, right, and to see Bitcoin at the prices it's at. Uh, to see, you know, there are builders working on all kinds of things from messaging protocols to some really interesting infrastructure that I think will make this technology more viable in a way that's not about a weird casino fetish, but actually like just useful. And, and as a product designer myself, I, I believe above all user experience rules everything. No one is gonna use a thing because of a technology, they're gonna use it because of a, a, a problem it solves or something it does, a why. And we're in that phase now and it'll flow through. And I think the, to Rick's point, Zerp got a lot of people drunk on the sort of high end potential of what could be. And we've had a reckoning now, and I think it's good. It sobers up CEOs, it sobers up GPs. Yeah. It's hard times create great companies. So, so there's a lot of focus right now, obviously these spot Bitcoin ETFs have captivated, not just the kind of crypto community, but a lot of you know, investors who are looking at alternative assets. I, mean, I know there's a lot of talk about it at this conference here today. Mm -hmm. When you think about, and Rick, I definitely want to get your take because you were an early investor in some crypto adjacent yep. projects too. When you think about that consumer interest in Bitcoin in the lead up to that December 2017 high and the ICO craze, and then mm -hmm. you think of that crypto winner that 
that we had that went really through to 2020, mm -hmm. and then we saw that second craze, which got a lot bigger, yes. right? Yep. And the and, and and more people, you know, ex the whales who hold, you know what I mean, lost money clearly than made in, in a lot of these projects that are, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, that sort of thing. How do you compare those two periods and, and how, like, give us like an optimistic sort of um, bent on, on what happens next here? Because again, you know, you just mentioned the price of Bitcoin at 40,000, it was 20,000, you know, nine months ago or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the barometer that a lot of people are using, mm -hmm. but what's going on under the surface and what makes you optimistic about another phase, I, whole phase? I continue to be bullish on Bitcoin because the the simplest explanation for it that it has proven out is as a store of value. And like, as an Armenian, I enjoy gold. <laughs> Why? Because it has some weird cultural value that I just like. And many, many cultures all over the world find this shiny rock to be valuable. I, I just know for sure that we are funding an asteroid mining company. We're never gonna find Bitcoin on any asteroids. Yeah. And I know that the supply of this cultural asset is fixed. And so the dumbest, simplest execution of this is something that I believe is, is interesting and valuable long-term. Now, there are plenty of people who don't touch gold for, I've heard Warren Buffett's rants, fine, yep. okay. Different flavor, this is the nerd version of that, okay. The hope that I have now in this next cycle is its utility above all, its well, hold on. Can I just interrupt for a second? Please. What is the utility other than store of value? Because I will, again, I, like, please. You know, there was an amazing uh, podcast, Chris Dixon, A16Z Crypto on uh, Hard Fork, uh, the, the New York Times this past week. And he just wrote a book and it's really in defense of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really make any great cases for any utility other than store of value. So if right. you like gold and you're a, you wear black t-shirts like these guys, normally <laughs> you're going to like nerd gold better, right? Like that's the utility. Yeah, that's fair. Um, well, well, let's let me give you the I'll give you the quick pitch that I think has become very crystal clear in the last year. So I don't know. I, I do hold Ethereum, whatever. None of this is investment advice. I think there is an argument for a blockchain. Maybe it's Ethereum. Maybe it's a layer two. We'll see. I'm making no particular picks there. But what's so powerful in this age of AI that we live in now is we should all take for granted there will be infinite. Let's just say images creatable indistinguishable from one another. We are gonna see a glut of these images all over the internet in the years to come. We're already seeing them. Now imagine a world where you cannot trust a single software file, an image, a PNG file, knowing if it is real or not. And imagine if and only if the devices that capture these could inscribe on an immutable global ledger a way to verify, yes, Alexis Ohanian took that photo on the 30th of January at this time in this place, yeah. and you had a way to sign digitally in an immutable global ledger, a blockchain, that this thing is what it says it is. In a weird way, I actually think this, this revolution we've seen in AI is gonna make part of the bull case for why a blockchain will matter, because you'll need to sign this sort of proof of humanity. I don't know which projects will win specifically, yeah. but it feels pretty clear to me that in a world where you need, if you're the president, if you're a CEO, if you're just a teenager, it will be very valuable. Again, it's always user experience. It'll be very valuable to prove, for instance, that this image is verifiably from you. So there's a, there's a billion dollar startup idea, someone's gonna build it, and then in a few years you can invite me back, I'll be like, see, I told you so. Yeah. So I think, what, what I'm certain of though is this next wave cannot be about casino mindset and to the moon. 
it will be, it will be quieter. It will be, oh look, our phones do this thing that's more useful now. And, and it will provide value and underlying that will be this technology that can do something that we desperately will need. Yeah, and Rick, how, you, at first mark, I mean, you guys, it's interesting that you, and we're gonna talk a little bit about AI and, and some of the shift as far as VC from Web3 oriented projects into AI, and now li li literally we're hearing a lot of folks talk about the intersection of the two uh, and, and getting to that utility phase. How have you guys thought about crypto? You guys have made some some, some, some investments, I, I mean, yeah, long we, time we were, ago. Yeah, you're, we you're were Johnny come lately. We were early in DCG, we were early in Ledger, we were in, early in a lot of projects, um, in that we think, especially in venture capital, you look at wildly asymmetric risks, and if this became, uh, we, we wouldn't have expected to get this big, but if it became anything close to this big, these would be important companies that were providing the infrastructure for a new economy. So we, we believe in probably two things that are probably still important, and it kind of focuses us going forward. Um, in new markets, we believe investing in the picks and shovels in the infrastructure because that's what's going to be needed to, to build it out. And then, you know, Lexus is uh, pressing bet on Coinbase and the custodial services that they provide are incredibly important. Um, and we do some of those things at DCG and Ledger. The second thing is, is there a real ROI? So whether it was 15, 20 years ago as we were investing in software businesses, today as we're investing in AI, or today as we're investing in crypto, is there a real ROI on this? Are you able to do something better, faster, cheaper that someone's willing to pay more because that's, that's increasing efficiency? So if there's transactions that are occurring on the blockchain, whether they're financial transactions or whether they're custody transactions, are you able to do it better, faster, cheaper because people will pay for that? And it's not speculation, and we, we steered clear of the speculative use cases uh, and, the, and the speculative coins and the ICOs, and we said, hey, are there other things that you could do to make it cheaper? And we're investors in companies that do data storage, we're in uh, investors in companies that provide insurance verification, we're investors in companies that do um, faster, better, cheaper transactions um, using the blockchain smart contract infrastructure. And that's kind of the way we think we're gonna see the world evolve that it's a little bit like a lot of the market today of a show me time, of show me how this is really working, and the people who are gonna be able to show it are people that are gonna be able to prove we can make or save you money. So let's talk, this is a really important concept, and I think it's important probably for a lot of folks in the audience here. Um, you just mentioned kind of that ZERP mentality and how it made its way into you know, a whole host of different risk assets that maybe shouldn't have been financialized. That's me editorializing there, people. Um, but when you think about this period that we had from the collapse of FTX, Okay, and then you know some really big brand name investors in on that one, and 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 you know, and we can we don't really have to go into that, and then bookend it with what we saw basically a year later with OpenAI, and let's talk about due diligence a little bit, and have there been some some lessons learned? Do you think um, you know from the VC community a little bit? And again, you know, you've been in and around the space for a long time as an operator, as an investor. I'm just curious, was that something like like a lot of lessons learned there in the last couple of years? Well, I mean, there's a little bit of kind of what we hit on in the beginning of, hey, there has to be a leader. So I think in some of those cases, everybody was relying, it goes back to some of the Theranos stuff and other, other things that were proven to be leaderless and therefore diligence-less, therefore yeah. uh, governance-less. That, um, you know, as we invest in a company, we generally are the lead directors, we lead the diligence, we form that syndicate, and we hold that company accountable from a governance perspective, 
But you know, at a time when either companies are super hot or they're, they're playing a little fast and loose, and usually those two things together create all these problems of, of saying, hey, yeah, if this is a really hot deal, if you're not gonna do it, someone else is gonna do it, and you have to act, have to act quickly, um, you know, it's really hard. But we always say, hey, we're, that's, not, that's not the game we play. We play a value game, not a speed game. And so we're gonna pass on that. But I think some of the problems you've seen, not, not as much open AI, but definitely in some of the other things that have been exposed as frauds have been, hey, everybody wants to be part of something. No one wants to lead it. No one wants to lead the diligence. No one wants to lead the governance. And you rely on other things, including social proof. Yeah, Alexa, well, I true. mean, again, you know, one of those ended up in a horrible collapse and it really put the industry in the penalty box for a bit. And then it's remarkable how dramatic the open AI situation was for about a week. And then it's probably just off to the races now. I'm just curious, what were some of your takeaways from that as an investor and a former operator? Uh, for open AI specifically? Well, just, just thought that whole period in general, just, and just thinking about from a due diligence standpoint. It's, I mean, I would echo a lot of the same things Rick said. That's just a way that we, we, we don't want to, we don't want to form opinions based on other people liking a deal. I think, look, there's no amount of perfect, no, it, you're going to be incapable of doing 100%. You, you, you will not be able to take the time necessary to deeply understand every bit of a business. What I think we saw during Zerp, though, was some nothing close to that yeah. in some of the most egregious examples with companies like FTX. And I do think, yeah, it's like it comes back to the leverage. When money is cheap, founders can raise because lots of people have it or are willing to slosh it around, creates that FOMO. And I think that's when the best investors have to steal themselves with the understanding of really like, why are we doing this deal? Can we actually get to conviction? And then being okay, missing out on deals. We've, we didn't know, because I was so early in Coinbase, I never saw FTX, yeah. but I had enough people in the orbit that kept raising an eyebrow. No one wanted to say anything publicly because you'd kind of look like, you'd look like a jealous hater mm -hmm. yes. if you were saying like, oh, does it, the math doesn't math, how are they spending all this money? But it, it created this weird dynamic in the industry where everyone was whispering about it being Kind of yeah. bullshit, yeah. but but no one was no one would really want to just go out there and, and say it flat out without evidence. Uh, but the good news is, the resilience of the underlying technology has proven that you know there is still a there there in crypto, and as thankfully our you know judicial process took a look at it, you know what they found was outright fraud, and it it could have been Beanie Babies, yeah. right? What he was doing is not. The, the, the illegality, the meltdown of FTX was not an indictment of the technology, it was an indictment of the humans around and finding yeah. out. Yeah, they found out. Um, let, let, let's talk um, a, a little bit though. Um, you know, I mean, listen, the cult, I mean, one thing we haven't said is this, 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 this cult of that founder was really something that I think played out throughout. So charismatic, the I don't but, know how. But, 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 but let's talk, and I want to get your take on this. A headline yesterday, uh, Elon Musk, you guys heard of him, um, for XAI is mm -hmm. looking to raise $6 billion at a $20 billion valuation, but he's not raising from you guys or, or you know, Sand Hill Road. It's sovereign wealth in the Middle East and it's family offices. So what's happened with all of these valuations in the AI space, have we learned anything? <laughs> because my point is, it's like right after the open AI thing, the next headline is that they're raising at $100 billion. You know what I mean? So, so talk to me a little bit about that, because I'm not certain we've learned anything yet. Oof. Uh, okay, well, this one I think is rooted more in the technology, which is 
OpenAI and slash Microsoft, and we can, you could have a whole other panel just about the governance structure of that nonprofit, but the, they have such a strong lead in the space and are now fortifying that. And I, I think what's gonna be really interesting, I think open source has to be a great buttress against that. But if you look at the other for-profit efforts, it's, we're at a point now where like, we've all kind of taken for granted the magic of AI, right? We're actually kind of bored about how long it takes, <laughs> or at least frustrated, because now we've gotten to the place where it's like, yeah, of course I can have this thing generate a two-minute bedtime story for my six-year-old daughter. Why does it take so long, yeah. right? We've gone from magic to now banal, and it's, it's I think, going to be hard for the next best one to justify why it should exist in a world where there's a couple of big incumbents that solve the problem really damn well. So I think there are going to be some issues where you know, you've got companies raising on tremendous multiples at tremendous valuations, where I don't know if the math maths because they can actually get the user bases. I think he it's said going to be it, a winner-take winner nearly most, and it's going to be, I think, the biggest players already kind of gobbling up more authority. Listen, it's funny. You know, Rick and I have been playing this little game for the last 24 hours, like when we would go to Google something as you do on your phone, and we've been putting it into chat GPT-4, and I'm telling you, my Google search is routinely better, okay? So you know, you know oh. what I mean? Yeah. Google searches. Yeah, and, and you know, Gavin Baker is going to be out here from Atreides. I saw he tweeted last week something about, hey, who's using Copilot? Unimpressed? You know what I mean? Like, I'm just saying, I think we could be at the precipice of valuations, both private and public markets, way ahead of what these practical use cases are. Well, I think that AI is good at some things, not good at others. I mean, some of the mm. things that we were looking at were fact-based, right? Google's great yeah. on fact-based search. Yeah. Not as good as of, of long-form narrative in chat GPT, of a bedtime story. I literally do that, it's great. It's great, yeah. it's a great, it's great use case. <laughs> is that hallucinated yet, though? I mean, I'm just saying, oh, you could God. stunt their childhood <laughs> in the wrong, you know? Still keep a parent in the middle. Yeah, exactly. yeah I was just saying, it's good to be there. But, uh, but I think you're, you're gonna see, and there's gonna be winners and losers. There's gonna be com some companies that are frauds. There's gonna be some companies that fail. And there's going to be some enormous companies. Mm -hmm. And those enormous companies are going to capture a lot of value. The other thing we're seeing in AI is the market leaders have been more all over this, this than anything we've seen in the past, right? I mean, it was mm. 20 years ago when I was in the business, like, well, mm. what, you know, isn't IBM going to do this? Probably, yeah. probably 25 years ago. Isn't IBM going to do it? And everyone say, well, you know, IBM's super old and slow, and they're never going to do this. You know, Microsoft was all over OpenAI and it had a deep relationship, and it's integrated that with Bing, it's integrated that with Azure, and they're doing a much better job, same thing with Meta, same thing with Google, that they're either co-opting some of the best companies or just doing things like uh, yeah. with Bard themselves, and therefore I think you're gonna see those, those winners be crowned by the existing incumbents, and those companies come but, even more important. This is putting my fast money hat on. The two problems that you have right now is if you are correct and Microsoft's trillion dollars in market cap that it has gained in four months because of the excitement in and around them harnessing this technology and given their market position, what have you pulled forward rather than excitement? And then yeah. the flip side is if you look at the private markets and you look at an Anthropic or a Cohere or you look at the valuations there and if they're gonna be the losers, there's gonna be white bouts all over the place and, and to, at a scale that the VC community has not seen. It could oh, make no, we've FTX. Seen it. I mean, if you look at the search market from 20 years ago, you know, mm. you know, Ink to Me and Dogpile and Altavista, all those box. guys were, were small, were small blow-ups. But then one one company wound up cre creating a multi-trillion-dollar company. Yeah. And so that's kind of the the creative destruction of the venture capital and the startup ecosystem process. That obviously everyone's going to rush in. You know, I think at one point in, the, in America there was twenty thousand different TV companies hundred years yeah. ago. 
Now there's zero because that, that consolidated, the, the market created some structure, there was some Darwinism that occurred, and that happens. And that's, you know, and we're at the point of the 20,000 AI companies that in 20 years we're going to say, oh, that, that's the, that, you know, $10 trillion company was the winner. And yeah. God, I wish we would have invested in it. Or maybe, I, hopefully, I, I will have. Well, we can, we can debate. Right we'll be that. back next year, and we'll debate this a year on. Um, you know, you said, Alexis, mm -hmm. AMA, ask me anything. We got, like, a minute right here. Um, I saw you. You're an amazing creator uh, on a whole host of different ways. Forget about what you do with a grill on, with pancakes and, and the like here. If, <laughs> you, get, if you haven't seen it, you got to check that out on Follow Insta. Instagram. Um, Cybertruck. Yeah. You were one of the first folks to pick one of those bad boys up. Did you drive True. it back from Austin to Southern Florida? I Can we get a quick tried. review? I just, I'm dying for it. You didn't hit any snow drifts or anything like no, that. No, no, it was great. We, made it. I made it to Houston with my road dog, Russ, and then I realized I don't like driving that much. <laughs> and <laughs> dropped it off at the, a Tesla shop and they put it on a Oh, car really? And I flew back oh, I didn't see life. that on the Insta story. Because well, I, I, I just realized that many hours driving. And you like it? Scoop right here. Huh? I, I just no. It's it is a tremendous, really fun drive. Yeah. I it's 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 as as enjoyable as the X, which I love, but somehow even more fun to drive. It's that drive-by wire steering. It's just a nice. Okay. Uh, it's it's fun. My daughter slightly embarrassed by me when I drive her. Just for that. Yeah. Well, I, she's, <laughs> she's like, I'm like, can I take you to school in this? And she's like, no, Papa. I'm like, all right, I'm already, she's six, and she's already embarrassed by me, but that's okay. We think well, it's only gets worse. Yeah, oh, we, we have older kids. It's going to be a lifetime of that. Um, all right, well, listen, right, Alexis Ohanian, Rick Heitzman, thank you guys so much for being here. We thank all of you guys for being here. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.